listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today, our guest is Hillary Atkinson from Fenwick and West. Hillary spoke to us from San Francisco, where she is based. We discussed her career and role at the firm, its pro bono program, the intersection between pro bono and corporate social responsibility, also known by its acronym CSR, the Justice Bus, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Hillary. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Let's jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to Fenwick and West? So I graduated from law school a very long time ago, and during law school, I had a public interest emphasis, and I also spent my summers at legal services organizations. And I felt a little bit of pressure to go into private practice, at least for a short time, just to know for sure that um, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. I actually come from a family, a long line of lawyers. However, my grandfather... um, was a lawyer and, as the story goes, was unable to practice law. He was Jewish, living in New York, and could not find a job that would pay him enough money and, I think, to support his family and was a little worried about hanging out his own shingle. So he ended up selling paint. So his dream for all of his children and grandchildren was to be uh, litigators in the courtroom. So although I knew I wasn't headed in that direction, I did spend a very short period of time doing it. And a job came through a recruiter that was for a pro bono coordinator at McCutcheon Doyle, a firm that no longer exists. And I jumped at the opportunity and it just so happened that I'd worked on the same cases in law school that they were working on um, through a clinic that they were working on and some big piece of prison litigation. And uh, um I got that job and kind of the rest is history. I was at McCutcheon and McCutcheon turned to Bingham McCutcheon and then uh, Bingham McCutcheon turned to Morgan Lewis and some folks from McCutcheon were at Fenwick and I had kept in touch with them and they were creating a new position at Fenwick, which really incorporated all the stuff that I was really interested in. I mean, I've been pro bono counsel for a really long time and, and this, the Fenwick job was intriguing to me because it had, um, the corporate social responsibility component of it, which is the charitable giving and community service piece. And I felt like I was ready to expand, um, learn, grow um, personally and professionally. And so um, I jumped at the chance and the people at Fenwick that I had met and the people that I knew from um, my old days at McCutcheon Doyle were, you know, great, incredible people. And I really wanted to work with Kate Fritz, the managing partner. And um, so I came over. Thank you. We're going to drill down more into what you're doing now and talk about Fenwick and West. But before we let this go, I want to circle back to your origin story as a lawyer, because that's fascinating, your family, your history, and ask these two questions that I think are very interrelated. So I'm going to ask them together, which is sort of to call back a little bit more about why you became a lawyer. Not all of us listen to our family's dreams for us, <laughs> but you did. Um, so why you became a lawyer, slash, what sparked your passion for access to justice? That's a really difficult question, because I don't really know. I don't know if it's something that happened, you know, that I've always had a passion for it. What I can tell you is that it might in part be the fact that I spent a few years traveling around before I finished college and went to law school and traveling the world. So I really saw some different circumstances in different countries that um, 
influenced me greatly. I also feel like I, in part, have always felt that felt the privilege of being born in the United States and, you know, not in poverty, um, always having food on the table. And, and I guess I've always felt that everybody is just a few educational opportunities away or a few unforeseen circumstances away from being in need to access to justice. And once I became a lawyer, I knew that I would have to have at least a small part in ensuring that access. Anything else you want to add on that? I'm just trying to think of what. I don't like that answer at all. Oh, really? I think it's uh, interesting because it's such a nature-nurture question, and it seems like what you're getting at is being exposed to so much around the world, you know, injustice, poverty, challenges people face, that it's a way that you felt you could make a difference, you know? It's a compelling story to me <laughs> as a listener. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I also feel like, you know, I'm... Like when I'm walking down the street and I see a homeless person, it's not that I feel a connection to that person, but I can actually understand how somebody got into that circumstance. Yeah. And that if I had not been privileged enough to live in a family that really emphasized education, no matter what it was, not saying that I was forced to go to law school because I wasn't at all. My sister's a doctor, but so, <laughs> but you know, education above all else was the number one yep. thing. And that is key, I think you know, in my feeling privileged, as well as having, you know, being a part of a family that had the means to, you know, when you get into a little bit of trouble as a youth, be able to get you out, you know, as opposed to having the wherewithal and the means to redirect you as a child is, you know, yeah, critical I mean, too. Sure. It's to so making the, that wrong step to end up in the position where, you know, access to justice is critical or life and death. Yeah, I mean, I think that's some more great themes. One is really just luck, right? How fortunate some of us yeah, are. Yeah, and like that, why were we born here and not yeah, in Syria? Yeah, why? and that, that our privilege also affords us second chances in a way that others don't get, right? And so you, you could work out, you could make mistakes and they weren't dire. You know, they didn't brand you forever for what you did as a teenager yep. or something like that. Yep. And, and someone else not similarly situated's life's ruined for the same action. Um, and I yep. think you, so there's something about you and your backgrounds, your personality, nature, nurture, <laughs> that sees the unfairness in that. And so there's that luck. There's that, oh my gosh, just some people have luck of the womb <laughs> and birth circumstance and others don't. And then there's, as you talked about, sort of the, with the homeless person, it's it's a degree of empathy that says, like, we're all one bad break from that, you know, sort of, yeah. our employer goes out of business, we have no income, we can't get another job, we lose our home, you know, it's just the dominoes start falling, and it's not hard to see this sort of could happen to anyone at any time, you know, all of us need help sometime. And if we're able to provide it, good for us, you know, because. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many people are $400 away, which yeah. is, you know, an emergency away from being homeless and yeah. why, you know, I feel obligated morally, you know, and, you know, just emotionally obligated to try to help. And I think that's where, you know, for all the lawyer jokes and all the, <laughs> you know, nastiness um, and digs, 
that's where people like you who have training and skills combined with the passion are able to deliver um, access to justice that that we as a society, you know, come up short <laughs> time and time again. So it's it's going to be interesting as we continue our chat to talk about the marriage of CSR and corporate social responsibility and general, you know, sort of volunteerism with mm-hmm. pro bono. So we're going to dig in more, but I'd like to step back and talk about California and specifically the San Francisco Bay Area where you live and work and have spent so much time. So tell us a little bit about the landscape and the pro bono and access to justice culture there. In our little Bay Area bubble? (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I feel so lucky to live in the Bay Area where it's so progressive and um, access to justice is just such an important issue. First of all, I want to say that our local pro bono council team is so collaborative, and I feel so fortunate to be a part. We may have a smaller number of big firm pro bono council in the Bay Area, but um, we are all very, you know, we're a close-knit group that's very collaborative and works very well together um, to come together on big issues and small issues to, um, you know, to encourage and increase access to justice. Um. I also feel like we're lucky because we have a very supportive judiciary and, you know, even immigration judges that come in and give trainings at nonprofits on um, immigration, um, which I think is probably unusual for different than other places. And, you know, we have federal judges and politicians who have started their careers in legal services. So, are also completely devoted to access to justice issues. I mean, for instance, you know, um, recently, I think it was last month, San Francisco, the mayor of San Francisco signed off on a plan to increase funding for legal defense um, for immigrants, so deportation defense, um, several hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, the city really comes together on issues such as this and um, works together to find a solution, both with legal services and with firms. Um, so the, I just, I really appreciate the open dialogue that we can have in, in our city about um, these issues and coming up together, whether it's the judiciary or politicians or legal services or the private bar, to really work together to find solutions. I'm hearing a lot of jealous gasps by listeners <laughs> who are, A, um, jealous about funding, you know, and that sort of elected leaders support legal services, and that you have a supportive judiciary, including from immigration courts, because I was just talking to people in Atlanta this morning, and they oh, have I'm, very, yeah. very hostile immigration courts there. So um, I like that we can at least have some shining beacons at some parts of the country to think that there is hope and role models and and best practices. So tell us more. What else is going on in the Bay Area? Well, I mean, I think it's really the understanding that people see the need here and are willing to chip in to you know, get things accomplished. I mean, also what makes the Bay Area unique, we have to acknowledge that all the tech industry is here. And here are, you know, mostly younger people, um, a lot of first and second generation Americans who feel very strongly about um, 
immigration issues, but I think access to justice issues in general. I mean, Julie Park, our director of pro bono, does an amazing job, as well as other firms. And there are constantly partnerships with these companies, with LinkedIn, Google, Facebook, uh, Intel, um, you know, they're uh, doing direct services with attorneys at firms on their own, coming to clinics, you know, they're all very actively involved. And I think that's, you know, that really gives kind of a full circle effect. You know, you've got businesses, you've got politicians, you've got judges, you've got the private bar all working together for common good and access to justice issues, which is, um, you know, empowering, really. That's great and hopeful. And asking if there were any other players uh, that you wanted to talk about. Well, I will mention one thing. The San Francisco Bar Association actually organized How to Be a Good Ally in January or February, right after the election. And it was this amazing event, which I think over a thousand people attended, mostly lawyers. And it covered a whole range of topics and how the new administration would be affecting these um, issues, LBGT, reproductive rights, immigration, housing, a whole host of people from the community, legal services mostly, and or people who were very knowledgeable in that area of the law, came and spoke and gave everybody some basic knowledge and kind of a heads up on what's to come and what we can do to help. And that was really a community coming together, of course, because we were all very much stunned and worried after the election. But being able to have a convener who can help mobilize, organize, and educate, um, and that ultimately help protect vulnerable individuals and communities, that's a great service, you know, and that's a great um, energizer uh, to translate feelings into action. So that's, that's a great program. Yeah. And then lastly, I will say throughout, which, you know, I cannot not mention Julia Wilson at One Justice and the power of One Justice in California to bring together all of these constituencies and really, as Julia would say, you take off your organizational hat and you look at the problem and we, you know, sit in a room for hours on end with Julia facilitating, figuring out how best to approach these issues. So all relating to access to justice. People can look up One Justice if you're not familiar with that group. And we're going to talk a little bit more about some of their projects. But could you briefly describe the organization for people who may not be familiar with it? One Justice was founded, I believe, um, it started as a public interest clearinghouse in the late 70s. But at some point, maybe around... um, 2010 or so, the name changed to One Justice. And essentially what it is, is it pulls together law students, legal services, law firms, the private sector, various nonprofits in order to provide and really brings us together and is the convener in order to help build a system that can provide access to justice for the hundreds of thousands of Californians who need help. Super. Thank you for that. I think that's really helpful background for people who aren't familiar already with the organization and its work. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about you (laughs) and a little bit more about what you're doing and how you spend your time. So in June, almost a year ago, Fenwick and West announced an integrated firm-wide CSR program, Fenwick Gives Back. And this is how they describe the initiative. The program integrates key components such as pro bono work, 
charitable giving, and volunteerism with the goal of increasing and focusing employee engagement and ultimately ultimately making a larger impact within the communities where Fenwick employees live and work. So let's talk about your role at the firm as Director of Corporate Social Responsibility and Pro Bono Counsel. How do you spend your time? So the Corporate Social Responsibility Department is brand new to Fenwick and I was really excited about coming over and starting this department and incorporating all of the charitable giving and kind of aligning our volunteerism and pro bono work and really seeing how we can increase our impact in the community, as you said. Um, My days right now are still spent learning and growing and developing policies and procedures and figuring out how to align all of this, um, all of, you know, the three components, pro bono, charitable giving, and and community service. So that involves a variety of things, you know, some of which is responding to charitable requests and working with Kate Fritz, the managing partner, to determine what, you know, how we want to align our programs and um, and who we want to support and if we want to be actively involved with those we're supporting. And much of my time involves um, setting up and running our community impact committees in each of our offices and really listening to um, all those involved that want to give back about what their passions are and what they're interested in and figuring out how to put the pieces together Um, and trying my best to inspire those that aren't actively involved in giving back either in pro bono or volunteerism currently and finding out how I can get them involved and what their passion is in order to get them involved and hopefully, you know, create a spark within them that makes them carry on, which I think generally happens. So, oh, let's drill into that a little. How do you do that? How do you create that spark? What have you found works best to incentivize and encourage lawyers at Fenwick to to get involved? I do think it has to start with I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy, but following your heart, following your passion, figuring it out what it is that makes you want to give back. I think generally nobody can deny that giving back, whether it be through, you know, giving a small donation or volunteering at a school or taking on a pro bono case doesn't feel good, right? I think we all walk away feeling better than we had before, but it's getting to the place where you feel like you have the time which can be offering support around other areas to give the person that time. And also making sure that people are feeling passionate about what they're working on. Um, As far as inspiring people to do stuff, I think that one is definitely identifying somebody's passion and bringing them the opportunity to do work in that area. And um, also offering support around other things that are going on because we You know, they do have work and we are a business, so you have to acknowledge that and try to provide some kind of support around that, whether it's, um, you know, time off to do it or um, a few billable hours or whatever it is. I think that that really helps. And honestly, storytelling. I don't do, you know, Julie Park does an amazing job at staffing all of our pro bono work. I, when I used to do it, you know, storytelling was was my way. I would go and sit in an associate's office and and spend as much time as I could before getting kicked out and tell stories of individuals of exactly what was going on in their lives and ask them if they would 
help. And if they didn't have all the time, I would say, how about if we get two of you? Who do you want to work with? You know, let's get a friend involved. You know, how about this associate down the hall? You guys could do it together. You know, what can I do to help you to make it happen? And inevitably, they would take it on. And then, you know, they would come back with amazing stories of gratitude from the clients that made them feel good. And then they become part of your recruitment arsenal. So there you go. Completely. (laughs) Completely. I once had a partner, we have a thing called um, Project Homeless Connect here in the city, which is also an amazing part of San Francisco. And it takes place in Bill Graham Auditorium, and it's roughly once a quarter. And I don't know how many homeless people end up showing up, 1,500 maybe, but they have different sections, a legal section, haircuts, you know, a little library, clothing, food in this humongous auditorium. And the legal component, some of which is helping somebody get their driver's license to the DMV. And I had a partner who had never volunteered for anything before a couple of years ago, go to the clinic and he was helping a young woman try to get her driver's license. And this woman did not have her birth certificate and she was from another state. And in order to get her birth certificate from another state, she had to pay $50 and she didn't have $50. So the partner called me and said, I really want to help this woman. This is what's holding her back. It's holding her back from having an identification to get a place to live, to get a job, and it's $50. Can I pay? And I said, yes, you can pay. And I think he actually ended up paying out of his own pocket even because he was just so um, taken back by the situation. And after that experience, he, he actually said to me, I... You know, I'm so happy you, in essence, forced me to go to this pro- this clinic, and um, I can't believe what a difference my $50 helping this woman get her driver's license is going to make in her life. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Um, you mentioned earlier, so I want to ask you about this. You mentioned Kate Fritz, the firm's managing partner, and she was actually an early guest on our show. So if listeners are interested in a law firm leader perspective, search the archives and hunt down Kate Fritz's episode. It was amazing. But here, here's my question, and this is such a softball, but could you tell us about the importance of firm leadership and leadership oh. support for pro bono? The support at Fenwick, the leadership support is pretty phenomenal. I can't even believe the amount of support at the executive committee. The firm chair is a huge, Richard Dixon is a huge champion of pro bono. He um, and CSR in general, uh, Kate Fritz goes without saying, want, amazing, an amazing individual, an amazing managing partner, so incredibly committed. I think it makes such a huge difference within a firm when you have leaders doing the work. Um, sending the message that we want everybody to be involved, sending the message that it's in our culture. This is what we do. We give back to communities. This is who we are. I can't underscore the importance it makes to a culture and to uh, and allowing people to do that work and encouraging people to do that work um, and in just the general feeling within the firm when that is one of the core values. I think that's a great takeaway for listeners who are always wanting to know, how can we do better at our firm? How can we improve our pro bono performance? Well, you have to look at your leadership. <laughs> it's, it's an important um, factor 
maybe just positive, but it's a very important factor. And I think that's a testament to um, what strong leadership can bring about. Well, when you have a chair of a firm and a managing partner on the firm, you know, both saying giving back is one of our core values of our firm. I mean, there's nothing else like it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, Hillary, what do you enjoy most about your job? I feel so, I mean, I say this to everybody. I feel like I have the, the best job in the whole world. I don't know how I got so lucky 18 years ago to get this job. Um, I feel so blessed that I get to do what I do every day. Not saying that everything I do is amazing. A lot of it is spreadsheets and um, check requests and, or, you know, responding to requests and, you know, or just general mundane administrative work. But overall, what I do is phenomenal. And probably the part that I like the most is inspiring people in some way, not just by me, but like by bringing opportunities to people and seeing, as we talked about, like seeing that spark emerge for people wanting to give back. Yeah. Creating those aha moments. That's exciting. Yes. <laughs> that's, creating that's, those aha moments. Yeah. I mean, really, honestly, I love my job right now because I'm developing a whole program you know, and that developing things is really exciting to me. And Fenwick is a, unique in that it 100% supports innovation. It, you know, it's constantly, it's a firm that believes in constantly changing and looking for new and more exciting ways of doing things and better ways of doing things. And so it's very much encouraged. I mean, it's very fast paced, but yet very encouraging of new ideas and you know, changing the way things have been done in the past to make them better. And so that part's really exciting for me to have. It's like a, you know, the door is open to anything that we want, any ideas that we want to try, you know, and not all are going to succeed, but there's, you know, everybody here is supportive of trying new ways and, and new things, which is a really great part of my job. But overall, I would say, you know, I love the networking. I love connecting people. I love people that are interested in things and then finding a way to get them to get involved and connecting the dots to, you know, really, because in the end, it's all about more people can be served, more individuals can be served, you know, more access to justice, more doing something for the good. And each individual that gives back has this cumulative effect, right? If we all gave back to one person, everybody, you know, the world would be a much better place. That is so true. So this was your words, I think, that you've been doing this for a quote unquote long time, um, which I don't equate with old. Let's just say that. (laughs) It's just (laughs) (laughs) your experience. So let's look back. I mean, how do you think the legal profession and the access to justice world has changed either legal needs or economically or the law firm world and or sort of another way what lessons have you learned you know what would the Hillary of now tell the Hillary of 18 years ago it's so funny I don't I feel like the years have just flown by so fast I still feel so young and green in so many ways you know, when I first started, I remember doing the Pro Bono Institute Challenge. I don't know if it came, what year actually it came out, the law firm challenge, whether it was um, right after I started or when. But I remember typing up McCutcheon Doyle's Pro Bono Institute Challenge on a typewriter, yep. you know, yep. and yep. we were at 5% one year of our total billable hours were dedicated to pro bono work. And it was, you know, so exciting then, but it just shows like how 
times have changed. I feel like now the Pro Bono Institute Challenge is really just so integrated into all law firms that it's not even this thing anymore. You know, it's just giving back pro bono work has really, in a large part, just become ingrained into a part of large firms, at least. You know, now we have pro bono counsel at almost every large firm in the country. You know, there's over 200 pro bono counsel that are part of the Association of Pro Bono Counsel. That, you know, never in my wildest dreams would I thought that would exist. You know, the access to information on how to provide these services and how to collaborate and coordinate and, um, you know, being able to replicate different projects from other states that are working well, all of that stuff is through the growth of the community and being able to share information. Yeah. And I think, I think the maturation sort of of law firm mm-hmm. pro bono, I think that's yeah. a, a great way to put it yeah. in. I will say we still have your forms. We keep them under lock and key, but we've got them. We've got all the challenge forms. <laughs> so we've oh. got them, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we still fill them out, but I'm not sitting in front of a yep. typewriter. <laughs> no, no. And it's gone eco and it's gone high tech, just like a lot of other things. But you actually ha- offered a great segue to a question that I want to ask because you brought up the idea of replicability, right? We hear about something that's going on in one community and we think it might work in our community. There are ways to hear about it. There are people to talk to. We can tweak. We don't have to constantly reinvent the wheel. Not everything Mm -hmm. is going to work in every city and every state. There are different needs. There's different landscape, but some things will. So I wanted to ask you about sort of what I think of in many ways as a sort of seminal California project that I think is replicable. It's meaningful. And people, especially Fenwick and West, has been such a big participant in this effort um, and it's it's just great. It's called the Justice Bus. Could you tell us about that? Well, the Justice Bus is amazing. Um, I mean, I think California is a little bit unique in that we have such a large part of California, which is a rural area with little to no access to justice. And so it's always, it's a very critical need in California to be able to reach those people and provide access to justice to those communities because California is such a large state. And the Justice Bus, I can't even tell you when it was created, but it's a bus run by one justice and they're wonderful staff and you board a bus and they give trainings. You know, the bus can take probably 30 people and they give a training on whatever substantive area of law that you're going to be practicing in for the day during the ride to a rural community an hour or two or three away And you get there, you provide legal services to that community who, in general, do not have the means to travel to a big city. And you get back on the bus after providing legal services to these individuals, and you go back home. It's very simple. We bring access to justice to those communities instead of expecting them to come to ours. And I think it's a really wonderful project. And Julie Park, the director of pro bono at Fenwick, actually um, is at the helm of our involvement with the Justice Bus. And she does incredible things with the Justice Bus, including um, partnering with tech companies um, a lot on these Justice Buses, which is a great way for everybody to mingle, but also to provide access to justice and make it easy because you're just taking off a single day to go provide um, legal services. And recently, she um, had an alumni justice bus. So a bunch of Fenwickians from the past got on a bus together and were able to go provide um, 
legal services to communities that needed it. It's it's a great model. And for people who are just hearing about the Justice Bus for the first time, I hope you'll investigate further because there's just so many possibilities. You're you're providing real meaningful service. You're reading, you're meeting real needs and it's just a very accessible program. Yeah, and it's providing legal services to people that wouldn't get them otherwise. I mean, it was a critical critical need in California, as was the Rural Justice Collaborative, which started, I think, after the Justice Bus, and which is setting up clinics, limited scope clinics in rural areas as well. And by rural, I'm not talking, you know, five, six hours away. These are communities that are very close to us and yet are rural and don't have access to justice. So we talked a little bit about what a big difference someone's time and $50 can make <laughs> to, uh, to an individual in someone's life. I was wondering if you could share some more examples of pro bono cases that have been particularly meaningful to you, either that you've worked on over the course of your career or that you've enabled <laughs> through your work that others have worked on. I know it's a little bit like choosing, you know, which child is your favorite because yeah. all of them are so amazing, <laughs> but you like storytelling. So share one or two examples. I mean, there are so, so many. From my first case in law school in, a, you know, a public interest clinic where I represented a man who was living in one of those long-term boarding hotels. He had a room there and he had been denied SSI. And he was so clearly schizophrenic, which was what his diagnosis was. And so clearly never going to be able to work and so grateful for the company when he would come to the office for to the school and I would meet with him and his dream was to get a color TV and working on that case just reaffirmed my desire to continue doing this kind of work. And it also kind of for the first time, I think was such a stark example of why access to justice and doing his SSI appeal was so critically important to individuals. So that was a case that changed me at the time. And since then, there have been just so, so many cases. <laughs> I mean, from the large litigation impact cases, death penalty cases, to, um, you know, even cases when we're just bringing issues to the forefront. We had a case many years ago, or a few years ago, actually, um, suing the state of California for um, education finance reform to when I was, uh, several years ago, when I was at Bingham, I got to travel around. We were producing a video on our case, and I got to interview a bunch of clients and the attorneys that had worked on them. And some of the cases were just so amazing. A young boy who had his parents had sent him or one of his parents who was living in, I think, El Salvador had sent him with coyotes to get to the United States. And he told, he was probably 10 years old and he told the story about the coyotes and how they essentially, you know, he was in the back of a truck for a long time, had to walk for miles, was put in an inner tube to cross a body of water with his only backpack that he had. And when he got here, he was put into detention and how, you know, our attorneys were able to find his guardian and able to help get him, you know, special immigrant juvenile status in order to stay in this country. To the woman who was, you know, being abused, came from another country, was being abused by her husband, um, was a victim to many horrible things that he did to her. And we were able to get her a VAWA, you know, in order to stay in the country. 
all of those cases to a case that I most recently worked on, um, a woman whose son was shot and um, in her home while she was in the other room and um, and we were able to provide her um, representation in order to get a U visa. One of the most compelling cases recently for me or personal cases for me recently was um, my babysitter who was about 30 years old a few years ago, um, had come with her family from Panama. Her parents years ago had applied for asylum under Noriega and um, somehow did not get asylum. Noriega was out of office and then the parents applied for other means to stay in the country lawfully and did not attach the three children. And so she had, although she had not lived in Panama since she was six years old, was in the United States, undocumented, trying to go to college, um, having some visa issues and um, trying to help her with that. And once Obama signed um, the administrative order for DACA, we were able to um, apply for her um, DACA status and somebody so close to me to be, I guess, really to hear personally from somebody who had lived here their entire lives, who was living in constant fear that she was going to be sent back to a country where she knew literally, I mean, nobody. She had some distant relatives there, but that was it. Her entire family was here, who her dream was to have a regular job and pay taxes. And, you know, she was also gay. So she was never at the time a few years ago going to get status by marrying somebody. She actually married her girlfriend, but was unable to get lawful status that way. And so she, um, or be documented. And so when she got DACA, she was so ecstatic. And, you know, of course, since then, and she immediately went out and got a job at Starbucks and was paying taxes on her wages, which she was thrilled about. And she since then has married her wife and is now has a green card, which is also incredible and shows how much times have changed in the past even five years. Yeah. Thank you for sharing such meaningful and personal stories and that are still so urgent and vibrant today. Uh, no doubt. So, Hillary, let's end with this. Who's your pro bono role model and why? And feel free to pick more than one. Um, of course, Julia Wilson, who's the executive director CEO of One Justice, um, all the work she does to pull together all the constituencies in California, law schools, law firms, attorneys, um, private bar, just to really help us uh, tackle the various issues that uh, you know are involved around the access to justice in California and beyond, um, you know, she really pulls us together in a way that's phenomenal. And I admire all the work that she does and really all the pro bono partners that I've worked with as well. You know, those that have given up billable practice in order to do pro bono full time and those that still have a billable practice that I've been able to learn and grow from and who've taught me so much over the years. And, you know, of course, Kate Fritz, who is, you know, one of the major reasons I came to Fenwick is just a phenomenal day role model for me every day in her amount of the work that she does and her compassion towards the community and all the issues around access to justice is just really awe-inspiring. 
And then, you know, in addition to all those people, it's all the legal services people that devote every day of their lives to helping serve the individuals that um, in our communities that need access. Yep. Unsung heroes. So those are uh, super inspiring answers. And thank you for sharing them for us. It's a great note for us to end on. Um, Hillary, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you so much to Hillary for making the time to be with us. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And please take a moment to leave an iTunes review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about PBI, you can find us on the web at probonoinst.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.